you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. For the last two weeks, we've been going through this, this kind of detailed study of the Holy Spirit, trying to, to really break down biblically who is the Holy Spirit. Uh, what is he trying to do in our life? We've been kind of doing this bird's eye view from Genesis to Revelation. What is the Spirit's role with, within our life? And so we've talked about how in Genesis, right on the very front page of the Bible, we find the Holy Spirit hovering over the deep chaos waters, getting ready to bring life to lifeless situations. And then we can follow that theme all throughout Scripture to the tabernacle and to the temple, all the way to Ezekiel's temple vision, to where Ezekiel sees this river of water flowing out of the temple, bringing life to everything around it. And we connected that last week with John chapter 7, that at the festival of tabernacles, Jesus uh, cries out that he is the living water, and that if anyone's thirsty and that they come to him and drink, they will receive living water that will outflow from them. And John tells us that by this, Jesus means the Spirit, that the Spirit would outflow from us. It's a theme that the rest of the New Testament authors pick up on, uh, that we talked about, that we are the temple, that we are the dwelling place of God Almighty. The Spirit of God lives within us, both to forgive us of our sins, but also to pour out from us to bring life to lifeless situations. And and so I, I did that whole last two weeks for two intentional reasons. Number one, because I want to demonstrate and show biblically that the Holy Spirit is not some new invention to make church a little bit more fun, uh, but, but is God from the beginning in spirit. God in spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It's a normal, real, active person that wants to work within us and wants to work within First Baptist. And I also wanted to explain that the Holy Spirit is not a force to be contained or manipulated, but, but he is a person to be known to live with, to have conversation with, to experience and be comforted by. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing within each and every one of our lives. And I think what ends up happening in churches is we tend to stumble into pit traps when when we're desperately trying to understand the formula of the Spirit, or we're desperately trying to understand the Spirit so much that we begin to try to formulize the Spirit, or formulate, I guess is the word. We put a formula on who the Spirit is, and we try to box him in to say, this is how the Spirit is going to work. And we do that, I think, because we within our, like, American DNA, we love formula. Right? Every self-help book in the world is going to say, here's the formula. If you just add these two things together and put a little bit of a dash of this, you'll get the results you want. And I love formula. One of my, this is going to sound so weird and nerdy, so bear with me. One of my favorite weeks in college was syllabus week. You guys, you guys remember syllabus week in college? That every time you go to class, they just hand you the syllabus and they talk through it. I loved that week because at the end of that week, I got to sit down with all like 12 of my syllabi. Is that the plural for syllabus? Syllabi? I got to sit down with all my syllabi and like plan out what each week would look like and like formulate this is when I'll do this assignment and this is when I'll do this assignment. And then usually I get to the third week and just throw it all away by that point because it didn't work out the way I thought it was going to. But throughout the process, I really love this idea of formulating how my semester was going to end. That was a great thing for me. I loved formula. What I hated is when professors deviated from the syllabus. You know, when you would get ready and bring an assignment, like, actually, don't worry about that assignment. Well, you said to do it in the syllabus. Ah, don't worry about that. I'm like, why, why write the syllabus? That's my formula, man. I need that. And you changed it on me. Like, I'm not 
Do you guys feel this way about formulas in life? I don't, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the weirdo. But I love formula because I want to know that if I do this action, this is the result that I can expect. That, that's how I want my life to function. I want it to be very uh, intentional, very expected. I want it to formulate to what I believe should happen. And so I, I want to know that if I eat this food and exercise in this way and sleep this number of hours a night, that I can achieve the status of healthy. And, and I want to know that one day when Haley and I have kids, if I raise them in a particular way with the right amount of discipline and a good heaping of fun, that they'll turn out wonderful citizens and amazing children of God. And I want to know and confidently understand my marriage, knowing the exact number of intimate conversations uh, I need to have at date nights with Haley uh, versus the right amount of solitude so that I can have a successful marriage. And and I want to know how to invest my retirement correctly because that way I can one day be generous and, and serve a church without anything in return. I, I want to know these things. I want the formulas to work out for me. And yet I know, and you know, and we all know, people who were more health conscious than anyone we've ever met encounter a life-halting diagnosis. We've known parents who have loved their kids just like God loves them, and their kids have walked away in rebellion. If you're married, you've probably known and had days that even when everything should be clicking, you just feel like something's off and neither of you can place it? And I won't even talk about the stock market right now because that's not fun. And here's my point. Attempting to formulate a person is often a great way to rapidly miscategorize and mess things up for that person and mess things up for your relationships. I I mean, husbands, imagine this. Imagine uh, your wife's birthday rolls along and you, you know, you just forget. It's a problem. But the next day, you know, you, you bite the bullet, you go out, you buy flowers, you write a wonderful, amazing birthday card, happy birthday, I love you. And, and you know, she responds out of loving forgiveness. And, and you guys just have this incredible date night the next day where you make up and, it, and things are just good. Now imagine if you think that's the formula. And next birthday rolls around and you're like, oh, last year I forgot her birthday and it worked out for the best, so I think formulaically speaking, I should just go ahead and forget her birthday this year, and then tomorrow I'll buy her flowers and a card. And that, that's the formula. It'll work, right? It will not work. Because we cannot formulate people. People are far too complex to follow and match formulas. And welcome to what I believe the problem is with attempting to put a formula on the person of the Holy Spirit. Because he's not a force. He's not some mystical thing that if we can set the tone of church just right, then he has to come down because we can manipulate him into doing what we want him to do. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not formulaic. He is relational. And I say all that to say that we as churches, we attempt to formulize the Spirit all the time. We attempt to put this formula in that, that if we can provide church in this certain way and, and if we can structure the service with this in form and have this build up and this song happen in this way and ask people to pray this prayer right here and we match it all together, then that's, that's the point that the Holy Spirit comes. And anytime that's our approach, we've already missed it. We've already ruined our relationship with the Holy Spirit because he is not a force to be contained or or formulated. He is a person to be known and known by. 
In fact, over the next three weeks, we're going to look into the book of Acts. And if you just go through, and I'm going to do this with you real quick, so this is going to be a fast-paced one of those. I'm just giving you a bunch of stories, okay? If you go through the book of Acts, you will find that the Holy Spirit is all over the place, doing tons of different things in way different ways that you wouldn't expect. So in Acts 2, Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and he's going to, in his sermon, say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And people will run to that, and they'll see right there it says, you have to repent and be baptized for this. If you're not baptized, you don't get this. There it is. But if you fast forward just a few more chapters to chapter 8, The disciples head off to Samaria, and they find out that people in Samaria had heard about Jesus, but they hadn't really given their lives to Jesus. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So so what does the disciples do? They lay hands on them and pray over them. Wait a minute, Peter. You said repent and be baptized, and now you guys are laying hands on. Which one is it? And then you fast forward to Acts chapter 10, and Peter is in the house of Cornelius just preaching to these Gentiles. And as he is preaching, the Spirit just falls. There's no prayer. There's no baptism, so to speak. There is just Peter giving a sermon and the Spirit falling upon these Gentiles. And if you jump all the way over to Acts 19 and you go to to Paul goes to Ephesus, what does he do? Again, he's back to laying hands to receive the Holy Spirit. And I want to go to Luke and find him and say, well, Luke, which is it? Is it being baptized? Is it laying on hands? Is it just like a really dynamic service and sermon that makes this happen? What is it that makes the Spirit fall onto us? What is it that fills us with the Holy Spirit? And I think if we went to Luke and asked that, Luke would say, it's not a formula. It's not about fitting him into a box to match what you think manipulates him to do what you want him to do. It's about submitting to him and trusting that he has the power to do as he sees fit. That's why it can be these different ways, and yet this result is still the same, being filled with the Spirit. Do you want me to complicate things a little bit more? Try to formulate the works of the Holy Spirit. Go through Acts and just look at the different things the Holy Spirit does, and see if you can put a formula on it. Because we can see in Acts 4 when a crippled man gets healed in the temple courtyard and shows up at the worship service, and that's pretty awesome. And then you fast forward a long time, and there's this whole story where Paul is preaching a sermon so long that he preaches till midnight, and a boy falls out of a window and dies. You guys remember this story? And so Paul goes down and checks on him, and Paul's like, he's fine. And then Paul just keeps preaching until the morning, and the boy walks home. What is that? You know, works of the Spirit in some way or fashion. But sprinkled throughout these types of stories, which are all over the book of Acts, are far less tangible movements of the Holy Spirit. So while the Spirit is going to heal this man in Acts chapter 4, the Holy Spirit is also going to fill Peter to speak in front of the Sanhedrin. What Luke says, that Peter filled with the Spirit begins to speak to the Sanhedrin. That in Acts 13, the church is worshiping, and as they're worshiping, the Spirit speaks to the church and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the mission field. And I want to know, like, how, how did that happen? Was, like, the Holy Spirit got onto the microphone and said over, like, the speakers within the church? Did every person have a voice, like, infiltrate their head? Was it some Luke doesn't say. He just says, as they're worshiping, the Holy Spirit spoke. Whatever that means. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Timothy head off on a mission trip. They're, they're going to plan to go to Asia. And then Luke tells us that the Spirit prevented them from going to Asia. And then they decide that they're going to reroute and go to Bithynia, and then it says the Spirit prevented them from going to Bithynia, and so then they end up in Philippi. And I want to know, like, what does that mean? Were they going to get on the boat, and there's like this magic force field that they bounce off of, and they're like, oh, guess we're not going to Asia today, guys. 
Did they miss their alarm clock and wake up late and the boat had already set sail? And they're like, well, I guess that's the spirit. Did Paul just pray that morning and get this inclination? I don't really think that's what we're supposed to do. Which is it? Luke doesn't say. He just says, this is how the spirit moves. The spirit said, no, you're not going there. Then in Acts 21, we get this really weird story where multiple people at the church in Ephesus are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Luke says that they do this through the Spirit, that the Spirit says, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, you will get arrested. And then Luke goes on to say that Paul, through the Spirit, says, no, I'm still going to Jerusalem. I'm like, wait a minute, that's a contradiction. Is the Spirit telling Paul to go to Jerusalem or not to go to Jerusalem? What's happening? Welcome to the Holy Spirit in the book of of Acts. This is where we're going to be spending the next three weeks. It is wonderful and it is not formulaic at all. The Spirit is not interested in matching our formula. He is interested in dwelling and leading our lives. So here's the goal today. The goal today is not to present to you some formulaic life hack that's going to get the Spirit more active in your life. That if you'll just follow these three steps, you'll receive the Holy Spirit and things will be great. Here you go. Let's go do it. That's not the goal. The goal is to ask the questions, who is the Spirit and how do we grant him more control over our lives? Let's start off. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about for John the Baptist baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here's what I want to do. I just want to take a few minutes. We're going to walk through this text kind of verse by verse. I want to point out a couple of things. We're going to do a little tour guide, point out some, some exhibits to you along the way. And then we're going to break this down, answering the question, who is the Spirit and how do we give him more control of our lives? So let's jump into this. Chapter 1, verse 1. I wrote these things in the first narrative, Theophilus. This is written by Luke. He's referring back to the book of Luke, his gospel that he wrote, talking about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That is a key theme of the book of Acts. If we're going to understand Acts, we need to first understand what did Jesus do and what did Jesus teach. That whisks us all the way back to two weeks ago when we talked about Jesus' baptism in the book of Luke, that as Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. We get this beautiful Trinity picture. And then from there on out, Luke's going to talk about how Jesus, led by the Spirit, does all of these different things. So Jesus, led by the Spirit, goes up to the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus, led by the Spirit, heads to the temple to preach. And he's going to do all of this stuff. But in his first temple sermon, he gets up and he gets to the scroll of Isaiah and he finds the spot where Isaiah says, the Spirit has anointed me. And Jesus reads this out loud and he says, the Spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. And then he says, what you've heard is fulfilled in me. And he goes and he sets it down, and it's this hyper-awkward moment where everyone in the church is like staring at him. And he's like, this is, this is who I am. 
Do you guys know what they try to do next? They try to throw him off a cliff. That's what Luke says, that, that Jesus claiming this, because this was an unreasonable claim. No, 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 Jesus. The Spirit doesn't get to do that. The Spirit lives in the temple. And Jesus is saying, no, now the Spirit lives within me. And all of these things are going to be results of what happens when the Spirit encounters this world. And so Luke wants us to pick up on this to know that whenever we continue what Jesus did and taught, it is going to look like good news to the poor, release to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. This is what it looks like when we continue the works of Jesus. But this time in the books of Acts, it starts not with Jesus, but with a bunch of no-name fishermen and their friends. And they are going to continue this same work. And we have to come to that and say, how? How do untrained, unexperienced fishermen do and teach the same thing the very Son of God did and taught? Verse 4. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. How are they going to do this? Because they had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be the Spirit through them that leads them to continue everything Jesus did and taught. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But this is where we find our answer. How do these ordinary people directly continue the ministry of Jesus? Because the same spirit that calmed chaos at creation, that brought life into Mary's womb, that descended upon Jesus at his baptism, dwelt within Jesus, making him the temple, bringing life and forgiveness to those he encountered, that same spirit will come to live within these men and women. Why? Well, in verse 6, they, they, they try to take a shot and they miss it. So they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel the kingdom of Israel at this time. And in their minds, whatever this spiritual power look like, looks like, it looks like political power and, and influence. It's finally time to return Israel back to the glory days of King David. Let, let the rebellion begin. Let's get our swords. We got the power now. And Jesus comes in in verse 7 and says, that's absolutely not your concern. That's not what you're to be thinking about at all. And then he says this in verse 8. Why are they going to receive the Holy Spirit? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The power of the Spirit is not about political power. It's not about influence. It's not about any of that. The power of the Spirit is always an empowerment to witness. That's the power of the Spirit, an empowerment to witness. The filling of the Holy Spirit is the demonstration of the gospel. And it's far, far more than just good moralism. Because I don't know if you guys know this, but I would just go ahead and remind you. And I get the whole concept of the theological determinant of, of total depravity and outside of Jesus we're all broken beyond fixing ourselves. And that's fair. That's right. That's good. I agree with it. But if you go out of these doors and you pull someone that doesn't know God and does not have the Holy Spirit and you ask them, are you a good person? Do you know what they will say? They will say yes 100% of the time. I'm a pretty good person. You could go grab a guy in jail and just say, hey, you're in jail for all of this. Are you a good person? I'm like, I'm generally a good person. Like, what? So, so I say all that to say, if the only thing the Spirit is providing for us is some form of morality, the world looks at that and says, I already have morality. I don't need anything else. It's got to be something more than just mere morality. 
So yes, it involves holiness, but it goes so much deeper than that. How does the early church demonstrate the gospel? Well, they do so through first proclamation. They're going to proclaim, they're going to preach, they're going to tell their neighbors and their friends about King Jesus and what he means when he says that he's now king of the world and if we would just come to him and give our lives, he would offer us forgiveness and peace and restoration. But along with that proclamation, they have active demonstration. There's going to be sacrificial love and ridiculous generosity and constant forgiveness and outreach to the poor. It is going to be this combination of proclamation and demonstration. Now, we tend to navigate to one side or the other. So, so you'll, you'll get the, your people that are like, uh, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Right, you guys heard that one. And you'll get the people over here that's like, hey, just, just so you know, you have to use words. You can't, you can't just be a good person and expect people to understand this. Words are necessary. And I think what the Spirit of God is calling us is saying, I will help you use words, but I will also be the demonstration of the reality of this gospel within your life. That the way you act and the way you think and the way you interact with the world and the way you respond to the news will be so radically different than the rest of the people that they won't even be able to understand what's happening except for there's something empowering about that person. It's got to be the Holy Spirit within us. The Spirit empowers us both because he constantly points to Jesus. He empowers us for proclamation and demonstration so that he can constantly point to Jesus. This is what Jesus said in John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So what's the Spirit going to do? He is going to bear witness to everything that Jesus did and taught. Welcome full circle to Luke 1, 1, or to Acts 1, 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He then goes to chapter 8, or verse 8, and he says, You will receive power from the Holy Spirit. I'm not breaking stuff here. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. You will also do and teach what I did and taught, because the Spirit lives within you. So before we launch into the stories of Acts, Luke has already established the theme. Luke is saying, hey, do you remember everything that Jesus did and taught? Watch these ordinary people do the exact same thing. And by the way, if you read the book of Acts, do you know what the ending of Acts looks like? It doesn't have one. You get to the end of Acts, you're like, Luke, did you like, just forget your book? Like You were writing it, and then you're like, oh, I forgot about it, and then it just got published somehow? Like What happened? And I think it's very intentional that Luke did this by design, because what Luke does is he says, this story has not ended. You are now a part of this story. That the Spirit is going to continue doing within you, if you have the Spirit, doing, and doing what Jesus did and teaching what Jesus taught. Welcome to the Holy Spirit. So, two questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? How do we give him more control over our lives? Not for the sake of formula, but for the sake of filling relationship of God that leads us to both proclamation and demonstration. So here's your points if you take notes. We're going to go through these pretty quick, but I just want to tell you kind of what I think is going on right here in Luke 1 as we set the theme. Who is the Spirit? The Spirit is God immersing and empowering. The Spirit is God immersing and empowering the Holy Spirit is God immersing himself into our lives and our lives into him and empowering that life to both proclaim and demonstrate the gospel for the outpouring of life all around us. So what this then tells us 
is that if the Spirit is immersive and empowering, then his desire is to immerse us in his presence. The Spirit's desire is to immerse us in his presence. I think this is the most direct and biblical sense of what it means when the Bible, when the Bible says to be baptized in the Spirit. When he says, you've heard me speak about, for John baptized in the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now, now the church in a lot of ways in different areas has wanted to go off and, and pull this to mean extravagant things of a second filling and marked by signs and wonders. And, and I'm just really not going to address much of that today, because I think if we keep this within its biblical context, we'll find that, that this concept of baptism is directly tied to the concept of immersion. That when you are baptized in the Spirit, it also means you are immersed in the Spirit. We do the same thing with water baptism, right? If you're baptized in water, we could say you're immersed in water. Baptized in the Spirit, immersed in the Spirit. To understand that, we need to do a biblical concept of baptism. And for that, just for time's sake, I was going to do a big, long thing here, but I won't do that. I would just remind you, go back and read the Old Testament. Look how often God delivers people through water. Noah in a boat, Moses and the Israelites fleeing Egypt through the Red Sea, uh, Joshua and the Israelites going from, from the wilderness to the promised land through the Jordan River, that God is always in the business of delivering his people through water, that, that it's this, this symbolic representation of from death to life in the story of Noah, from slavery to freedom in the story of Moses, from wandering to permanence in the story of Joshua, and it's all through the immersing, the passing through of water. All of that to say, baptism has within it two core ideas, immersion and transition. And I think the same is true with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is transitional, marking the moment that our life's transition from being about us to being about God as we surrender control and seek his forgiveness. And then it immerses us. This, this is what I wanted to accomplish with this demonstration today. That the Holy Spirit not only lives within us, but we live within him. And I spill it all over the place. That we live within him. That, that the Spirit is the breath within our lungs and the breath that is on our skin, and, and he's all around us interacting with us. I, one of the things, I think, if, that, if, if we could at the end of the day somehow get some movie screen of every time God, uh, the Spirit, interacted within our lives, we would be amazed at how often it was and how often we missed it. Because we're so distracted. we got a million other things to bother our times. i got a phone that I can sit on and scroll for 10 hours and find new information every single second. And we miss the Spirit immersing our lives. And this is what Jesus is saying. I'm going to send the Spirit that he might immerse you. Jesus wants his disciples to be immersed in the Spirit so that every single part of their lives are always impacted by all the present Spirit of God within them and around them. He wants them to be attuned and changed by this new reality of God's presence totally immersing anyone who would believe and as they do that, they are also, verse 8, they are empowered. So the Holy Spirit desires to immerse us in his presence and to empower us in his person. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. There is an undeniable and clear tie to the presence of the Spirit and the power of God outflowing from our lives indwelt with that said Spirit. Now, here's, here's the thing about power. Anytime there is a passing of power, there is always heavy risk involved in that passing of power. 
This is why a year and a half ago when you guys hired me that you had a team of people that went through like a three-hour interview process over Zoom first, and then we came and we talked for like four and a half hours in person, and then we did like a day where I came into the fellowship hall, me and my wife, and you guys, anyone got to come and ask us questions, and then we came on a Sunday and preached in view of a call, and we opened up for every member in the church to vote. You know why we did all that? Because you were getting ready to pass power to a person you hardly knew. Like, I, I don't mean to be weird about it. Do you guys understand that like, I'm one mistake away from, like, destroying this church. That's a good feeling, right? Whoo! Thanks, Pastor. I always love when you preach like that. But, like, seriously, I've watched it happen. You take a pastor and watch them mess things up. They make one mistake, and churches of 15,000-plus people crumple in a week. There is risk when there's involvement of passing power, and so we try to negate that risk through interview process and all this other stuff. But do you understand that God took a risk by empowering ordinary people? And he did it with love and intention? Because in reality, that is what love is. It's passing power to someone else. It's entrusting them with so much power that you know if they're the ones that make a mistake, you might be the ones that pay for it. This is uh, welcome to, to my relationship with my wife. Because she holds more power than anyone in this room over me. No one in this room has the power to absolutely break me like she does. Now, I trust she would never do that because she loves me. But this is what love is. And so God has entrusted this power to ordinary people. And because God's entrusted this power to ordinary people, you can just go ahead and expect that sinful ordinary people will do what? Abuse it. We are so good at messing this thing up left and right. And in fact, if you are reserved to the Holy Spirit, it's likely because you've watched someone do this. And you're saying, they abused it. I don't want any part of this. But it doesn't change the reality that God desires to empower you through the filling of his spirit. That he has lovingly chosen to take a risk by entrusting us with his power. Not so that we would have more influence. Not so that we would have more money. Not so that we would have more political pressure to do what we want. But so that we would be witnesses. That Portalis might see Jesus truly is God. He truly gave his life for the forgiveness of sins, and he truly will redeem anyone that comes to him in submission and says, Jesus, I want more of you and less of me. You see, people may abuse the spirit. And anytime there's this much influence and power to be gained, there will be people that seek to use it wrongly. But does that mean that God just looks at the world and is like, I need to put the spirit on a little bit of a timeout. You guys have played with it too much, and you've messed it up. No. It means that he breaks his heart and he says, no, 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 let me show you what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And God's invitation to you right now is that if you are redeemed in the gospel of Christ, you have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit the moment you gave your life to him. The Spirit is right here and dwelling within you. And what he desires to do is not stay within you, but overflow out of you. That's what we call being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's filling up so much that it begins, he begins to overflow from you. And he wants that. Because I've said this before, but let me just be very clear why I'm saying it again. Our strategies, our budget, our plans, our building, our, our ecosystem of a church, so to speak, our political ways that we function, none of it matters 
if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we can try to offer all these successful problems and we can tell people, we got the formula, Portalis, come on in, we'll help you get your life together. And the only thing we will do is ruin more lives. Because the only person powerful enough to change and redirect our brokenness is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. That is his desire, to be your witness. To be a witness through you for him. And we're going to look at two stories over the next two weeks of the, the Spirit guiding us and the Spirit working within us. But for now, I just wanted to set this tone and just to remind you once again, the need of First Baptist is not more people. The need of First Baptist is not more money. The need of First Baptist is not any need that we would think that would fix the problem within our own rights. The need of First Baptist, the need of the American church, the need of you is the filling of the Holy Spirit. It is the only way. It is the only way we can see this town changed. He is the only way we can see this town changed. And so maybe that's something that you need to, to just respond with this morning. God, I've been trying to do this all in my own power. I'm trying to do my job. I'm trying to lead my family, and I'm messing it up. I need your help, and you just need to come and pray for a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that mystically. I mean that simply, God, I need to be made more aware that you are within me and all around me, and I need to attune myself to that reality. And maybe you've never had the Holy Spirit because you've never given your life to Christ and you're still wondering about how on earth God would even love you in the first place. And to that, I would just say he sent his son to die for you. And that if you would respond to that, he would fill you with the Spirit and the same promise would be made available to you. And maybe you're empowered already. And I would just say, if you're empowered, great, where's the witness? We want to talk all the time about what's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's indwelling? What's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's filling? Is it tongues? Is this what... Acts 1-8 is pretty clear. The evidence of the filling of the Spirit is the witness of the gospel. When's the last time you've been a witness for the gospel? If the answer is, I don't really know, likeliness is you've not been filled with the Spirit. So maybe it's time to come and submit and say, God, I need that. Fill me again. Immerse me in you and empower me to do what you've called me to do. Let me do and teach all that Jesus did and taught. Join us into this story. Whatever it is, this is your time just to respond to that. Father God, I thank you that you are a good father, that you've not left us to figure this out on our own, but you are interactive with us, that, that you want to fill us with your spirit. Not so that we might have more power in what we think we should have power in, but so that you might have more power to be witnesses through us. So God, let First Baptist be a place that whether or not the outside world understands it, they cannot deny something different is happening. And then send us out to proclaim the reality of Christ crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. And let us do it all through the power of your indwelling spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray.